it's not going to go crashing down because the demand is high and that demand continues to grow, especially for champagne. There is no kind of end in sight for that, in my view. You're listening to The Vint Podcast, bringing you expert interviews, alternative market insights, and exclusive access to the world of wine and spirits investing. Enjoy the show. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Vint Podcast. My name is Brady. I'm joined by Billy from sunny South Beach. <laughs> You're so good with geography. Yep. Yep. South Beach, Silver Lake, Los Angeles. Now, I never know where Billy is, but you're back from Canada now and decided to get on with this quarter. We have a lot of great interviews coming up. We've done a few. We've got a stockpile that we'll be releasing and we're excited to, to get into both whiskey and wine over the coming weeks. Yeah. And then we not only whiskey, but bourbon in particular. I started mm-hmm. a new bourbon book last night. A lot of the, I looked at the reviews, they were either five stars or this book is way too much like a textbook. I feel like I'm learning. So I was like, all right, cool. I'm in. I'll download it and listen. I've come to the conclusion that Jacob Spears might be the first guy to make bourbon. Apparently, it's a really hot topic. Hmm. I had no idea. <laughs> I'm sure it was accidentally made a few times. Not accidentally. Yeah, I guess no. you can't really make it accidentally the way that you can wine. You can accidentally make wine. I think they were talking about the first person to call a whiskey that they made bourbon. Uh-huh. And so, like, he was distilling in Bourbon County, Kentucky, and sure, yada, yada. But, yeah, it's apparently a very hot-button topic, and I'm learning hmm. more about it. And I think that's one of the main reasons why you capitalize bourbon, because of Bourbon County. Also, I guess, because it has, like, legal <sighs> parameters around it. But I think that's one of the main ones, is that because of Bourbon County. I never put two and two together, including like Bourbon Street and New Orleans. It all goes back to being named after the French royal family that was the Bourbon dynasty. So there was a bunch of things. Apparently, they used to name a lot of things, at least in the French. The French and the English colonies were bordering each other there. So a lot of things that were considered good were just called Bourbon. So like Bourbon huh. sugar, Bourbon this. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then they named the county after them. I don't know. It's, uh, I, thought that I, I thought I had gotten away from, front, from French with, uh, and now it, <laughs> we have French with whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> now nah, we can, but it's bourbon. Yeah. No, we pronounce it like the locals do. That's my policy. So <laughs> Nice. And then to lead off the episode, I got a special gift from a loyal podcast listener and investor on the Vint platform. So shout out to Scott, who sent over a red wine from Nebraska. I'll hold up the bottle here. Yeah, hold up the bottle. This is Soaring Wings Vineyard, for those of you who are listening slash watching on YouTube. Has a dragon on the front. It's called Dragon's Red 2021 Nebraska Red Wine. And we looked it up, and it is Frontenac Grape, by which Billy has a little bit more info on in his book of wine grapes and wine knowledge. You want to share some of that? From our handy wine grapes book. Yes. One fun fact is that Nebraska has the most, the fourth most vines planted at Frontenac in the country behind Minnesota, Illinois, Iowa, then Nebraska at 14 acres. Juggernauts. Frontenac. (laughs) Yeah, really (laughs) giant. Frontenac is a hybrid of Lando Noir and a Vitis riparia, which is an American grape type. It's a species called Selection 89. <laughs> and apparently nice. Selection 89 was an absolutely crazy thing, also known as MN89 for you aficionados out there. Um, it is a blend of 
one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight different grape varieties. Fra is the European one. This one's a blend of eight different vitis species, including vitifera, including Limbrusca. It's crazy. MN89, wild thing. The first wines were made from this. It, apparently, it was Frontenac was created at the University of Minnesota. Big place, actually, for testing out grapes, especially cool mm-hmm. climate hybrids. Let's see what it says. It was selected in 1983. So the clone, they w- they produced it, they tested it, started producing grapes, and then it was released for commercial use in 1996. And then following that, there was a, a Gris and a Blanc. But it's cool to think that this grape has only been commercially used for, <laughs> what is that now, seven, 27 years? Yeah. Wow. This wine is 12.5% alcohol. It's denoted as semi-sweet on the website. And let's read, what does it what say do you think? here on the... Let me see what it says. Oh, I lost it now. Oh, here it is. So the <laughs> we want your tasting notes. We don't need the. We don't need the. Oh, that's right. Notes. But I just want to. Dragon's red. It's the most popular red. Fruity notes combined with a bit of dragon bite. I wanted to read that. That was what I couldn't remember how they described it. So let's see if I get any dragon bite. <laughs> it's definitely like a red fruit, like jamminess, almost like grape jelly, strawberry jam. Raspberry jam, but like the kind my grandmother makes with like fresh strawberries from the garden and a lot of sugar, not like the super refined stuff in the store. So it's not like candied tasting at all. Nice. A little bit of that, like maybe like bramble or something from the, yeah. the wildness of the berry. And then the finish is pretty abrupt and like a bitterness that almost reminds you of like a bitterness from a blackberry something like a little bit underripe blackberry, which isn't, un, it's not unpleasant at all. Super long legs on the grass, uh, on the glass. And that like the, what do you call the meniscus at the top where it kind of reveals the residual sugar, perhaps? Yeah. What do you call that, Billy? exactly what the slow legs are. Meniscus. The, the legs. Yeah, yeah. I was talking no, about well, the, the actual wine where the, the color. Yeah, the meniscus is where the color changes at the edge of the liquid but the legs yeah. running down are where you would see the thickness of the sugar yeah definitely not cloying at all i don't think it's not heavy on the palate so certainly enough acidity i think and it says here it's in springfield nebraska i'm not sure what the elevation is at the vineyard but it says sets high on the hill i don't know how nice. high up you need to be to say it's high in nebraska but yeah certainly good yeah sign. Yeah, certainly enjoyable enough as a as far as semi-sweet Frontenacs go, as I've only had maybe one in my life. So this is now benchmark for my Frontenac tasting. I have definitely had one before, and I, I actually liked it a lot. I couldn't – I thought it was from Ohio, but judging by these planting numbers, <laughs> it doesn't seem very likely. So that might have been the Minnesota one I was trying to remember a couple of episodes back. Wait, we don't – do we have it in Pennsylvania or Maryland at all? This only gave the top five plantings. Well, also, Indiana. fourteen acres is the top five. Then, <laughs> yeah, in Indiana rounded out the top five at ten acres okay. with an honorable okay. mention to Nevada. So yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure, but it's fun. It's one of these like cold, hardy American hybrids that uh, I think people are going to start seeing more, and especially as they try more wines. I don't have the temperature quite low enough. Probably serve it a little bit more chilled than I forgot to put it in the freezer, and it only got a little bit chilled, but. Definitely, I think, really 
would be really yummy. A bit colder in the summer. So a summer red. There you go. Perfect. So thank you. All right. Thank you, Scott, for the wine. Appreciate it. Yeah. If anybody else wants to send us wines, we're happy to taste them and share them with our the Holven community. All right. Well, on that note, let's see. What else interesting wine-wise? My last wine fun fact, I guess. I had a Lebanese wine. I've had a few before this weekend. That was really good. Another red blend. I, the name of the producer is escaping me, but if anybody wants to see on my Instagram at Unsung Vines, they can go see that. But yeah, that was an, a wild world of wine for this week. Did you pick that off a list or how did you come about Lebanese wine? Yeah. Yeah. It was at one of our local wine bars that kind of tends to push the envelope a little bit more. One of these natural mm-hmm. wine bars. Yeah. No, it was a, it was good. Balanced red, one local variety, variety to there. One, I think a little more international, but I can't remember. Mm-hmm. It's great do, for podcasting. Do you drink wine with the Super Bowl? I did not. Me did have a skin contact. It was, it was from the North coast. It was like Mendocino, not North Coast. It was from Mendocino. Uh, trying to remember the variety. It was a weird one, actually. But no, I had lemonade, personally. Nice, nice. Yeah, I picked up a bunch of like yeah. RTD, just like canned cocktails. Just a bunch of four packs of different things I'd never had and brought those along. It's like, not, wine doesn't have to be at every event. So, had some really crazy stuff. that it, They're really expensive canned cocktails coming like four packs and they're like 20 plus dollars. And they have 11% mm-hmm. alcohol and you can't taste it at all. <laughs> Those are the kinds of things. So they were fun to try. Nice. Nice. Let's, let's mosey on to our interview this week. Do you want to preview sure. our guest here? Mr. Christopher Walkie. Yeah. Christopher Walkie, who is a champagne sparkling wine journalist. I think self-described probably as a influencer with a very large following across social media. And he is the founder of a marketing and PR kind of content agency doing a bunch of different things across the space called Glass of Bubbly. Chris joins us to talk about his view of champagne, especially grower champagnes and the emerging market for English sparkling wine, as well as sparkling wines that we might consider from other regions around the world. He has a really strong community where they're looking, I think, to grow both in the content that they produce around sparkling wine, but also in providing links between grower producers and the folks in their community. So along with newsletter and other content that they put out, it's definitely a great follow on all things sparkling wine, especially if you're in Europe or you're listening from the UK, but all of it certainly is relevant for folks here in the US. Yeah. On the two parts of what he's doing that I really appreciate, the macro goal of all he's doing is making sparkling wine as a whole more approachable, more accessible, making it more of moving it beyond just a celebratory beverage and helping people actually understand it as an everyday type of wine. So two ways he's doing that. One, he has his own awards, this rating system, I guess, basically where wines are reviewed and then they get kind of bucketed and scored at the same time. So then they're describing wines more of like the way they taste. So a wine could be awarded like a juicier and fruity style, or it could be more minerally driven or brioche or yeasty, but I'm not getting the categories right, but you guys should check it out. We talk about it in the episode and it's cool because it's basically like when they get awarded, it helps the people understand what's going to be in the bottle rather than just objective opinion on how quality it is. Uh, Solely there's that. He doesn't just focus on. Yeah. 
Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. I was just going to say, as much as he focuses on champagne, though, and loves champagne, he's, I think his crusade is you don't judge all sparkling wines off of how much like champagne is this. So I think they just described as their way of com- combating that notion that anything sparkling has to remind me of champagne. And if it doesn't, it's poorly made. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, and that was going to be my point number two. I just love how he highlights oh, okay. yeah. all types of sparkling and whether it be a Moscato di Asti that's supposed to be just lightly frizzante and sweet. That's a really good thing in and of itself. It's not supposed to be like champagne. Exactly yeah. to your point. I love, I love how he's highlighting all the different regions and styles. So it's a great episode. Awesome. Yeah. Here's Chris. I hope you all enjoy and stay tuned for more bourbon and whiskey content coming up. All right. We are here with Christopher Walkie, one of the foremost folks, as we've just mentioned, about in the sparkling wine world. Thank you so much for joining us today, Chris. Yeah, thanks for having me on and really nice to meet you chaps and looking forward to our chat. Yeah, so the world of sparkling wine is enormous and you seem Mm -hmm. to have a grasp and your fingers in all of it. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into wine in general and how what led you down towards sparkling wine as a focus? Yeah, sure. That was a number of years ago. Coming up to 10 years ago, I attended a champagne tasting in London. It was actually with the CIBC, the Champagne Bureau. And I think back then I noted not very good marketing practices and very much different sparkling wine zones alienating each other. Prosecco didn't want to be known with champagne and Carver didn't want to be have a relationship. But I say to people, if you go into the supermarket, they're all on the same shelf. So you have to have a relationship. So my proposal was, let's create a website dedicated to fizz and let's bring the industry together, not only the top writers, but also the wine regions and the wineries. So Glass of Bobby was founded and here we are today. Wow, that makes a lot of sense. I never thought about it all on the same shelf together because everybody is all siloed in their own speaking of it, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah I, I was in Champagne this past year and we tasted at Runart. And they had a poster on the wall of the really old advertisement for their champagne. And I remember, if I recall correctly, I don't know if you know anything about this, but I recall that the gentleman who gave the presentation, the tour, that poster was the first known direct-to-consumer wine advertisement. Do you know anything about that? And he might have said that it was the first direct-to-consumer advertisement for any product. Rue and I have been to a few times. I can't remember the guy's name that is the winemaker there. I've had a few tastings with him. Now, I think they were the, they are the oldest champagne house, but note uh-huh. the fact that they were produced in still wine, which gives it such an incredible history. Possibly they might have been one of the first as well with the consumer advertising the poster, but I'm not familiar with that story, but it sounds nice, right? It sounds good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely does. Yeah, how Coming... You know, at Champagne specifically, do you f- see that as your real focus or do you think about sparkling generally as what your focus is these days or is it more centered on just Champagne? I would say it is general. For us, it is most certainly general, although obviously with the consumer side of things, any sparkling wine in the glass is usually referred to as Champagne. So it's got a lot of attention. It's keyword rich for online marketing purposes and it pulls in a lot of interest. But for us as a brand, we're equal. So that could be French Yakuta, it could be South African Cap Classique, it could be Canadian, 
And it could be traditional method, so champagne and, or English sparkling wine. And it can also be tank method, so Charmant method, such as Prosecco. Uh-huh. To us, everything has an equal kind of level, and we don't favour any region. I may have personal favourites, but for the platform is open to any bubbly wine. Wow. On one of your one of your many duties in the sparkling wine world is judging competitions, and I just finished my the W set portion or the diploma portion of sparkling. And number one, that opened my eyes to the quality of a bunch of regions around the world that I don't normally taste. But two, it got me thinking about how do you judge the quality of a sparkling wine? Because part of that is judging the mousse, but the other part is judging judging the aspects beyond the bubbles. When you're judging a competition, do you do two rounds? Do you have one pour with the bubbles and the effervescence and then let it settle and then dive in deeper? Or how does that work? I've judged in different countries. Everybody has their own format. Usually, I will find that the wines are served one by one. So you won't have a flight, whereas mm. a steel wine might have that. You serve the, the sparkling wine in, in the glass in front of you. Depending on how long they discuss that wine, they may requ- require a fresh pour. Now, when we do our awards in London, Glass of Bubby have our own awards. We will pour the wine, and of course, if they want it, re- retaste it. Uh, they will do that. Although, bear in mind that sometimes the wine improves in the length it's in the glass, and you get different expression from the fresh, chilled, say, champagne, to something that reach, reaches room temperature. But obviously, there always a big problem with judging the sparkling wines is time. So we don't have 20 minutes to sit and discuss. We could be doing one every two or three minutes. So it's in and out, in and out. Yeah, that was one of my issues with the way my exam just went is basically like they had carafes of sparkling wines to keep it blind and they would pour it at your table. And I was just like, this is, I can guess at what the bubbles or the, the style at once one point was, but I'm not getting a true expression of these wines. So that's, that makes a lot Everybody of sense. Everybody does it differently. One. Everybody does do it mm. differently. Some judges prefer a set system. Some awards have a different system. We have our system. It doesn't mean it's the right system, but it's what our judges are comfortable with doing. And we listen a lot to what the judges say, because really they are professional people that you need to ad- adhere to their kind of expectations. It's all what, different around the world. Do you find people, and I am completely on this boat of trying to get people to drink champagne more often. It's not just a celebratory mm-hmm. beverage and also treating it more as a wine, understanding the expressions of terroir and the grapes, especially there. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing people starting to treat at least champagne that way a little bit more than they have maybe five or 10 years ago? I think as a broad mass of the population that goes to the supermarket and with their trolley and puts in a, a wine as a treat, I think we're still some way away from anybody wishing to delve as deeply what you're saying there. But over the last, say, 10 years, there's been very good marketing for grower champagne, then understanding terroir. So if your viewers will understand things like cloths or single vineyards, people are looking to delve into that. They're realizing that Moet Chandon, fantastic champagne label, is a blend of many vineyards. So you're not really getting the true character of, of an expression from a winemaker mm-hmm. or a, a microclimate and etc. Grower champagne marketing has opened the door for wine lovers to suddenly realize the depth of the industry. So it has a positive, but I think consumers who are still putting that big brand champagne in, they realize the difference between a champagne and a Prosecco, mostly because of the price point. But champagne still has that big desired aspirational effect and it's the main one to put in the basket. 
So the goal of Glass of Bubbly has a number of different stated goals. And you said that you guys have hosted competitions and obviously tons of education and such like that around the space in general. Can you just take a step back and name the couple of goals and activities of Glass of Bubbly and what the focus is? I think for us now is to get more writers' opinions from around the world, discovering new sparkling wine regions, not so much that they are new, they've only just planted, but they're new on the block. So they're not very well known and suddenly they want some exposure. We enjoy doing that. Our trade show in London, although we've had big brands have a stand with us, most of the time it's unknown brands, unknown places that our attendees love to explore. We like to showcase that, though, to be honest, I love it when I'm writing about Don Perignon or Piper Heinzig, Verkley Co. There's equal history and depth to that subject. I think what we want to do is expand everything to do with the sparkling wine industry on our platform. And then people can dip in and absorb what they require from us. And then we do the show and we do the awards. It's all about promoting the small wineries. So I think that's where we're going this year. And we've got a big drive on getting more writers on board with us and building up relationships with, with other respected brands. So a one-stop hub for anything that you might want to know about sparkling. and That uh, used to be my phrase, the one-stop solution, one-stop mm-hmm. phrase. Yeah, come to us for sparkling wine, unbiased opinions from around the world. That's what we like to be. And we just sit in the middle, so not political, neither side. No, I haven't got any preferences on champagne or anything. We let the people do the talking. Yeah, it was exciting to, at the prospect of having you on because Champagne was a region in the secondary market in terms of investing that did mm-hmm. it did very well this past year and has done very well in recent years. And we were actually able to return really good proceeds to investors mm-hmm. in this past year from some of our Champagne offerings. Do you see some of those same trends in terms of price appreciation and consumer demand and lack of supply and all of the things that affect our secondary markets for these collectible spirits do you also or wines do you also see that in the consumer markets i think so when of recent when you're on the likes of facebook or linkedin you're getting these adverts up and obviously i generally get wine adverts but you're seeing a lot for investment there's a lot of companies investing and they're putting in some and they have to can't put fake figures so they're putting on some real good what's the word what improvement on your money that's the word i'm looking yeah. for on, on investment and some of these like within a three year period you're getting eight seventy eighty percent so it's very tempting. So I reckon that is seeing a growth in interest in that. Because obviously where we are in the world at present, there's some countries with real estate that's slowing down, interest rates going up. Some people just want to dive in for three years, five years with a trusted company that manages a set amount of money for them, knowing that they've got a very strong product that's going to be wanted. If you're buying something like Krug and other big brands, they've got twice the amount of demand over what they can supply. So if you hold some some vintage, uh, one of the cloths from Krug, you're going to be able to sell it. You're not going to lose anything. It's not going to go crashing down because the demand is high. And that demand continues to grow, especially for champagne. There is no kind of end in sight for that, in my view. You think, what do you think is driving that? I thought for a little while that especially American interest in champagne was partially because of the, the tariffs that the Trump administration had implemented champagne was excluded in those so as everybody turned during the pandemic to drink wine they were like oh not only you know can i escape the tariffs but i get to drink more bubbly and then turns out i really like champagne do you think there's just a macro global trend in uh, interest in sparkling wine as a whole that's growing or do you think some of these little factors may have sparked some interest and now it's falling into a larger 
Well, I think effect. partly my interest over the last decade, as soon as we started our concept, it started to grow. Not because of our concept, but it started to grow. Even uh-huh. like Prosecco, they went from like 30 million bottles to 100 million bottles, DOC Prosecco, mm-hmm. in a short period of time. So there has been a growth in sparkling wines. It's become trendy. People like sparkling wine. Prices have come down because the competition has grown. But in the last few years, with the global lockdown, the government lockdowns across the world, the hit on hospitality means that people were once going to a restaurant to open a bottle of wine, then they're not going to the restaurant, but they still want that wine. So they're ordering the wine. So whereas they're £80 for a bottle of grower champagne in a restaurant, they're buying two bottles of growing champagne off the online wine merchant. I think that has a big effect. And that's a global thing. So if you're in Japan, if you're in Singapore, if you're in the USA, London, wherever it may be, the host- many hospitality venues have suffered or have closed. The people are working from home more than in the office, especially London. There's still many offices that are empty. And their homes are empty there. They're living from their big houses out in the countryside and they're buying more of it online. So I think I believe that's where the growth is. But there has been a trend going upwards. I know champagne slowed down recently and Prosecco is tipping it, but there's always that constant battle. Champagne is a household name. We must remember everybody knows the word champagne, just other big household names. It's there. I don't ever see it having an almighty crash anytime soon. What's what I think is something that our American consumers can also, it's hard for us to understand and easier for you guys is when you were saying like Prosecco is on the rise or maybe there's cheaper alternative sparkling wines that are even made in the traditional method. Like for you guys in, in the UK and in Europe, affordable or cheap everyday drinking champagne prices is like pretty normal, right? And then like in the US, we can't get a bottle of normal big label mass market champagne for under like 40 50 bucks i think that's interesting that for you guys prosecco can compete with the lower tier maybe higher volume champagnes or not higher volume but lower cost i, I think yeah. that's an interesting dynamic that you guys have You've got, but obviously things have changed a little bit in the uk because we are becoming rest of the world when it comes to distribution from the eu so where we was in oh, the yeah. eu then we weren't the governments play their little games together, and then all of a sudden we're going to become rest of the world. So whether or not the, the costs, except for the postage cost, which is different to the US than to England, we're still going to go through the same rigmarole of the paperwork and the taxes and the customs and whatnot. So we may mm-hmm. find that the prices go up, which they have gone up. But certainly in the USA, I get a lot of messages from people saying, I can't get hold of my top champagne or my grower champagne. There's no way of getting it. it the stock has dried up. If we want something, we're going to have to pay over the odds. Whereas in the UK, yes, you can go to the supermarket and the supermarket uses, say, a bottle of cheap champagne at £10.99 to lure in the customers because they're going to buy a loaf of bread, a packet of butter and some cheese. So it's a it's a good marketing drive, as with Prosecco, £5, £6 a bottle of Prosecco, DOC, in your shopping basket. It's done. It's quite a cheap drink. And champagne at £10. I think the cheapest champagne was in the UK going back just a few years was £6.66 a bottle. Wow. And that's just crazy. It's like a can of beer. It's on the same kind of level. You think that's a perfect storm for the kind of continuing emergence of English sparkling as well, given that champagne prices are going up? Not to say that English sparkling is as cheap as the Proseccos of the world, but... Do you think that's a perfect storm for English sparkling to continue to take hold? 
I think the kind of the news with regards to climate change, so the natural climate change is happening. Temperatures rise in, 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 into the UK. So what, the, what France once had, England's having. It's got the same terroir as in, as in the soil because you've got the chalk that runs from Paris right across to the southern parts of England. So the only thing that's missing really in the UK is the age, is the knowledge of the winemaker and the history. But some of the wines are being made that are so good they do rub shoulders with champagne. And the good thing is it's getting out. The news is getting out there. The top wine reviewers are pushing that content out. Thus, the demand starts to increase. It may start at the very top. We're very keen sparkling wine lovers. Because if you go into the supermarket, English sparkling wine or champagne, it's the name that's going to make you pick champagne. But I think it's starting to happen globally. There's good sales. And the demand is growing but yet the volume still quite low. Forgive me, I don't know what the figure is, but it might be 5 million bottles a year of English sparkling wine available. So that just, it's got a very good, very good potential for growth and investment, dare I say, chaps. So can you walk into basically any wine shop in the UK and have a pretty broad selection of English sparkling at this point, or is it mainly direct from the producers there? If you go into a wine merchant, so a dedicated shop, yes, they would have a probably a number of, say, half a dozen English sparkling wines that they work with. If you go into the supermarkets, I'm starting to see at least one or two in there. Obviously, the biggest shelf is going to be Prosecco and the Champagne, Lambrusco and others. But you do see some. So these massive supermarkets, even one centimetre of space on the shelf, they're not going to give it. So they know it's a seller. It started to happen years ago. You would never have seen English sparkling wine or English wine. And it would have been seen as a joke if you did. It would be like, my God, goodness me, this is just made in someone's back garden. <laughs> it's come a long way very quickly. I was listening to a different, it was either a podcast or maybe I was reading about it as well, that was talking about how the different climate change, like I guess right where you, England is really on the cusp of if climate change goes up one and a half degrees, one way Celsius, yeah. one way or the other, we can make wine. Because apparently it was making wines way early, like Middle Ages, pre-Middle Ages, yeah. some Roman yeah. times. And then with yeah. the mini ice age that, nope, and now we're back to, it's possible again. Yeah, it's very possible. They're growing the traditional blend, so that the Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Meunier grapes. And though it hasn't quite got that champagne style, it's not champagne. But the quality is just as good with some producers. But just like champagne is good, average, really good. And the same with English sparkling wine. We can't get away in fact that some are just producing average, learning their way. Others are producing some damn good wines that have brilliant aging potential. And you've got to remember it's produced in the same way. So sometimes they're bringing across the same barrels. There's some champagne makers that come across to the UK to make the wine. And we've got the same grapes. It's just a touch different terroir. But I think in about the next 10 years, we could see some real exceptional improvements in English sparkling wine. You'll be curious to see what kind of identity English sparkling takes on, because I feel like a lot of the way you describe the scene right now is in, in relation to champagne, obviously. And let's see what kind of character it evolves beyond just trying to be champagne, which I don't think that they should try and do that, even though the climate might get to that place and the terroir is similar just as we see with the differences between grower champagnes in Champagne, there's always variance even within a single region. So I think that it'll be interesting to see how they set themselves apart or if at all, maybe. 
Yeah, I think so. It is a nice relationship. I think when you look at it globally, there's a nice relationship between sparkling wine regions and sparkling wine producers. And it's our own identity. It's English sparkling wine here as much as it may be Trento Dock in northern Italy, or it's its own unique style in this country. And it's still quite varied. You have it up in North England, English sparkling wine being produced. So there's a lot to explore just on these shores. And it's just as exciting as champagne and grower champagne. How do you think events like, and I'd like to touch on a couple of your events with the Sparkling Wine Summit and the Sustainability Summit. How do you think some of these events are helping to bring awareness both in trade and I guess sometimes to the public of some of these emerging regions? It's wine you need to taste, really. You, somebody can talk about it and it's really interesting. You can watch some of the TV shows and you really engage yourself in the show, but you need to taste it. And Business is still very much a face-to-face, a person-to-person kind of process. People buy from people they know and they trust. And I think in the wine industry, people like to come to shows like ours. They meet the winemaker, they taste the wines, they get a feel for it. And that's still important. We missed that over the last two years. We did do it on Zoom, and Zoom is a good idea. And I totally get that they can send these little mini bottles out and somebody can sit there and do a tasting. But there's that little bit of coldness in that process because you want to meet people and the wine industry still turns over like that there are wine events most times in the uk and they're usually quite heavily not populated attended and uh, lots of wines being shown and lots of business being done that's the way that people like to do business still yeah i agree and i think there's a certain i don't know i think there's certain conversations that happen organically when you stop at a at a stand or get to speak with somebody specifically and then maybe you mentioned something that you wouldn't unmute yourself on a Zoom to bring up, and then that yeah. kind of leads to them saying something unique. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think yeah, the shows are very important, but just like when they invite the press over, they invite some of the media over to the country, the wine regions do. They're invaluable things. It's big investment, but they're investing me in people. I've been on lots of wine tours, and I have fantastic memories. And whenever I go somewhere, it's always in the back of my mind a winery that I visited. And if somebody wants some information on the wine I visited, I say, I've been there here's the card of the guy that you need to speak to or here's the lady who owns it here's her card and uh, business is still done that way in the wine industry yeah can you go a little bit deeper into describing exactly what these summits are like the sustainability summit who is that for what do you do go into that a little bit to well, both of them? we've been involved in sustainability in the last few years so we have a dedicated award so the winery that ticks all of the boxes with regards to their sustainability practices in wine production wins an award with us. So this year we're having a dedicated summit where we're having guest speakers coming on board, talking about what they're doing in their wineries. It's not so much a vanity show, look at me, look at what I'm doing. It's more, this is what I'm doing. This is what we can all look to do together. So it's a kind of a motivational platform that we're providing. Guest speakers inspiring others, question and answers. And we're also going to have some sustainable wine masterclasses. It's just to push this sustainability. We don't want to go too much into climate change and different viewpoints. It's more or less we can all adopt a little bit of sustainable sustainable practices on site and do our part. But again, we've got is it the roundtable, sustainable wine roundtable on board with us. Slow Food, which is a big organisation in the UK, are supporting what we're doing. So we're going to have some good speakers. That's, it sounds like I, I wish I was in London to go to attend. One of the sustainability things that I'm randomly interested in is bottle weight 
overall and just packaging weight. What do you think the solution from a sparkling side, knowing the needs to be able to hold the different atmospheres of pressure in are for lighter bottles that aren't necessarily cans or something yeah. else? And this is all like the kind of cork on a screw cap, cap, cap conversation, isn't it? Where I say that new worlds such as Australia has really adopted the screw cap, where I say Italian and French wine, especially your Bordeaux and your Burgundies, we, we like to have that cork. And I think when we've got a bottle of champagne, standard bottle such as like this, we this is part of the enjoyment. When a consumer buys this, the bottle, the cork, the foil, it's going to be hard to come away from that. Now, you can, I haven't got anything here, but you can get the, the slightly less thick bottles that can contain the same pressure. They look rather cheap. They never look good to the chunkier bottles that, that we have. But I don't disagree. There's a lot that goes into making it. It's very heavy, this bottle. So everything, transportation and from A to B, it's it can have improvement, but I don't know what that improvement actually is other than losing the visual pleasure that the bottle gives us yeah it's an interesting challenge for sure one thing you touched on was the sustainability awards how long have you guys been giving awards what are your categories and how do you land on them is it just you is it your team yeah no we i'm not allowed so i don't judge myself i'd love to judge i don't because then we remain impartial Mm. and we do the serving unfortunately but we have judges that come from around the world so they're coming from the usa and canada last year they come into London and they judge. So we have a very unique system. There's a two-tier process. They judge to give mm. the wine a score. So that has, to a degree, one to 100 scoring. And it gets itself a medal if it's good enough. Then it goes back to be judged. So straight away, they judge it on a category. So this is where we're unique. So we have categories that allow consumers to understand a little bit more what's inside the bottle. So a bottle could be oaky and toasty. It could have a fruity style. It could have a sea breeze style. So we have all different names that literally aid the consumer and say, well, I want an oaky style or yeasty style. Then they can either have the oaky and toasty or other categories that we have. So that's what we do with regards to our walls. It's a two-step process. And then we have the, the trophies that get awarded out in London at a dinner. And then we have the overall trophy, which is the highest point scoring wine winery. And they take home the big very big rinks that we've got. It's been going on for, goodness now, for six years, I think six years with the sustainability trophy as well that we do in partnership with Slow Food UK. So they sponsor that trophy. And this year it's in South Africa. Graham Beck has the sustainability trophy in South Africa. And in France, André de Villeneuve Champagne for their rosé has the big trophy. Oh, nice. I know Brady probably has some follow-ups on that, but I will say I love the classification by profile mainly because each region isn't necessarily a monolith. Maybe somebody in Prosecco and in the Valdo Biadene, like DOCG, is making an extended Lee style, even though that's strange. But Or maybe it's a French Accorda style that's heavier time on contact. But anyway, like the idea that different regions can make different styles and it's up to the winemaker, and so you're not constrained mm-hmm. by just judging these next to each other, I think is a really, really cool They're idea. Totally blind. They're totally blind. So obviously the bottles are blind. I've got the cover on and they're not put in any category. So literally the only way that they are served is they start from the the less sugar to the most sugar because otherwise it would be too erratic. They've got no idea. You can have a Prosecco, then you can have a Slovenian, then you can have a German. 
And so it's we don't say here's the Blonde Blanc or here's the old world, new world, or here's the Prosecco and here's the, the another region. It's literally it's quite complicated. They try and guess mm. and sometimes they make errors, which is interesting. It just shows you how wines have improved. But our wards are unique and we get a very good bunch of people, very diverse from around the world. And it's always a hearty kind of few days. Outside of Champagne and also excluding maybe your home in, in the UK, what are some of the regions that have stood out in the last couple of years as just really leaps and bounds improving on their sparkling products? Ooh. I like Slovenia. I've been a few times to Slovenia. So we're right on the border there with Italy, Croatia, Hungary, and Austria. So we have quite a lot of character there. You've got the Mediterranean, Adriatic Sea. You have the freshness coming down from the Alps. That has very good traditional methods, um, especially on the Western side. And really good red sparkling wines. A big fan of red sparkling wines that come from there. The Marche region of Italy has good sparkling wines. I tell you what, it's such a difficult topic to answer because there are so many good areas. Trento, I love Trento. I think Trento is one of the closest to Champagne that you can have. And amazing labels there. Ferrari, very well known. It's a wonderful world to be in because it's so diverse and you can spend a lifetime investigating it familiarity with any of the sparkling producers from the u.s do you include u.s producers in these awards do yeah, folks come out for that? no we have i've got them on the shelf somewhere we have had yet yeah, definitely a usa and definitely obviously canada a neighboring country there we have had a few not as many as we would like but we have certainly had a few i'm trying to pull up my we went to slovenia this summer and we had a bunch of great sparklings and i had we had one that was I think it was late disgorge. It might have been ten years on the lees. I'm trying to pull up that bottle oh, right now. It's one of it was definitely one of the best. One of the best I've I'm just had. Check this bottle. This is Lawrenceford. Where's this one? Now that is South Africa. I'm getting confused. This is 101 months on the lease. So you're getting oh, that very wow. yeasty kind of biscuit character to the wine. And I like that style. I love the yeast contact, the lengthy leaves content. For me, it's really something else. Yeah, me too. I, another one I had just had up was also from, it was a late disgorge from Tasmania. Clover Hill was the producer, which I'm a big fan. I'll have to taste. I, I'll have to come over and taste. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Un- unfortunately, in the US, we can only get Jans from Tasmania, which I don't think does a proper uh, proper case for Tasmanian wine for American consumers. So I've been still a fan and trying to promote it from afar. <laughs> Let's see if I can find this bottle. Yeah, you wanna... I think in the, in the U.S., what you talked about in terms of lumping in all sparkling wines with champagne, I found that when I've talked to people about the difference between champagne and just maybe sparkling wine as a general term, that in itself, just understanding that difference can open up a whole world of understanding and willingness to explore other topics. Because I think they just lump anything bubbly in with this is what champagne is. One time I had something and it was sparkling. I must not like champagne. So I, I found that even just that really simple distinction helps open the conversation a lot. I think if you've got somebody that has a general knowledge on wine, as long as it's not enforced on people, because they just want to sit there and drink their wine. You go to the yep. pub with your friends, you've got a beer. You don't want somebody talking to you 10 minutes about it. You just say, can we have a drink, please? But if you've got somebody, just drop some little interesting bits of information, such as like a red grape and a white grape. You don't get red wine from from the red grape you get it from the skin you don't get it from the juice if you crush it they're both white just basic things like that intrigues people and then when you say about the traditional method charmant method and 
champagne and sparkling wines. Just put that in there, see if they're interested, and then all of a sudden they may do their own research. So next time they go into the supermarket, they check the bottle and they say, well, thanks to my friend, I'm not going to buy that, I'm going to buy that. Yeah. So yeah. people are going to want to know, I think, rather than trying to force a topic onto them. He's still looking for so, his wine, is he? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I think I've, I came across also a, an, another one while I was going back. We were able to go to Piemonte randomly. Oh, yeah. Uh, this for truffle season. So we had a, I had my first, it was an Alta Lange. It was a Reserva from 2012 with five years on the lees. I did not know that the Lange, I, I assumed the Alta Lange could produce some awesome, cool climate wines, but I did not know they were producing traditional method sparkling. I thought that was really interesting. Well, there are a few there. I don't know if I've been there. I've been nearby and I've tasted some. I remember having a really good rosé from there. Obviously, it's not known for sparkling. Obviously, we know what it's known for. But there are some there. And sometimes you get the big producers that have maybe a small little vineyard that they want to do a bit of bubbly because they know bubbly is trending. So they may produce 20,000 bottles just as a bit of financial relief. It may not be their vision to do bubbly, but they need to do it. That makes sense. Unfortunately, I cannot find the sparkling wine from Slovenia. I'm going to give up. I'll figure it out later. (laughs) Probably uh, this year's award winner, though, if you had found it. (laughs) (laughs) No, the guy was like, we, I know the person who makes this. They only make 500 bottles. You can't find it anywhere. So I think that might be why I didn't take a picture because I was just like, never see this again. There are some very small, there are some very small production levels on some wineries and the wines are amazing. But because they're unknown, do they have a value? Yes, they do. But within a very niche few people, if they suddenly got exposure people, and you've got proper sparkling wine lovers or especially traditional method wines, these are, they would do awfully well. There's some diamonds on in, in the industry for 30 or 40 euros, so 30 pounds or 35, 40 dollars before it comes to you guys out there. Are some amazing wines, some, a lot of dedication, a lot of time resting in the cellars and incredible skills from the winemaker delivered in that bottle for just a small price. On the note of ways of making sparkling, so we've talked a lot about traditional method. I think Maybe our listeners are familiar with Prosecco, tends to be the most well-known tank method. Maybe maybe Lambrusco comes to mind as well. Mm. Do you guys also cover like pet nets or things that are ancestral method, yeah. lightly effervescent with that first fermentation in the bottle? Well, yeah, the pet nets are quite popular. I like pet nat. The, what, the good thing with the pet nat is you, as long as you let, leave it rest in the fridge, should we say, for a while, you have a wonderful variation of flavors and aromas in one bottle. So if you mm-hmm. pour it initially, as you know, you've got all the sediment still in the bottom, the yeast, the dead yeast. You pour it, you get a bit clear. And if you do a little twist, so when you have it at a restaurant, a person will ask you, how do you like it? Or sometimes they'll pour it and then they'll do a few twists and then again. So you can start from clear and have a very cloudy mixture. So you have maybe quite a dry wine, depending on the style, but dry wine when it's clear, but very a pear, pear, yeasty style when it's all mixed up. So that is... An interesting topic, especially again for Slovenia. They have quite a few pet out out in Slovenia. Yeah, that's interesting. It sounds like the the servers in the UK are far advanced from here because I live in Los Angeles. We have plenty of pet nats, but they just dump it. And sometimes I'll get the very end of the bottle, and it's it's two thirds sediment, and I'm just like, yeah. I, I don't mind sediment, but come on, man, mm. I need a little more liquid in this glass. <laughs> I think the UK obviously is quite multicultural London, but especially in the wine side and sommeliers. Most of the sommeliers, I think I can say this confidently, are probably from foreign shores. 
So they're French, they're Spanish, they're Romanian, they're Italian. And a lot of the time they have such a vast knowledge in wines, these people. They've been brought up in wine. It's very much family culture, tradition, where they've come from. So they bring with them great knowledge. And serving, as you said, a pet gnat and getting down to the bottom would be, for them to do, it would be an awful mistake. The Sorry, I'm thinking about the sediment, like someone just pouring a half a glass of sediment into Billy's glass. Yeah, the, the other thing that I think has gotten wrong a lot over here in the US, and maybe it happened, sounds like maybe it doesn't in the UK, but it's just service temperature on some of these wines too. Is, is that something that you find in the UK as well? Like having, maybe you go out for a glass and just uh, the experience of being served some of these wines can really make or break the experience that someone might have with them to start. What's your take on the on-premise experience with folks when they're buying by the glass? I think it depends very much on what you're being served, as you probably are aware. So if you had a red sparkling when you're at a restaurant, it's very good to serve this very well chilled, four or five degrees. Cold, quite cold. Not a slush puppy as such, but something that's very cold. Whereas if you're going to have a Prosecco or an NV champagne, you want that at that guidance of 10, 11 maybe nine so something fresh when it comes to your glass it's fresh you're not going to have it in a flute or white wine glass but for someone like me if i was going to have one of their finer champagnes if i was lucky enough to be in a restaurant and I say can you open a d don 86 or whatever it may be i would like to see that coming closer towards room temperature a little bit chilled when we start off because i'm the kind of person that likes to have it in a big bold glass and i like to wait and I like, when it starts to reach room temperature, for me, it really excels in aroma and flavours. But I think wine is a personal choice. If somebody wants warm champagne and they're paying the bill, <laughs> that's what they should have. But that, I think that's the guidance. Something quite extraordinary, like a red, very cold, all your NVs, your Proseccos, your basic wine, it would be should be 10 degrees. But then if you're serving somebody a fine champagne, I would ask them, how do you like this? Would you like me to take this out of the fridge for 20 minutes, half an hour before I serve it? And that's what I would assume to ask. But I'm no sommelier. I'm just going by what I would prefer. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense, especially as people transition from maybe only drinking fruitier styles of sparkling. Maybe it's Prosecco. Maybe it's even here in America, like some of the standard U.S. sparkling. And if they move into a champagne, I've had a few friends like we've been somewhere and there's been like a Blanc de Blanc that somebody randomly got as a gift or had. And then they serve it like ice cold. And then basically everybody's like, this is horrible. It tastes just so mm-hmm. acidic and sour. Like give me one of these other wines back. And it's like, you serve that one. It's an older wine. It has some nuance and some yeast time, but then you're selling, you're serving it so cold that nobody can taste anything except for screaming ass. This is the difference. When we're doing the judging, it's very difficult sometimes to keep the bottles at the correct temperature. And even when you're serving, some judges will say this is too cold and some will say this is not cold enough. So you're always having to work with the professionals and how they want it. So I don't think there is a an exact answer. People are quite, we give the consumer, the person that's paying or the person that's judging that the right to decide. But just for me, I just love a big bowl glass for an old champagne and hitting towards room temperature. That's awesome. Oh, Brady, go ahead. I was just going to try and transition us a little bit to talk about this past year in champagne, just this most recent vintage and any rumblings that you're hearing about the quality and what came out of it. I think looking at the comments from within the industry, if we talk about last year, 2022, it seems relatively positive. I think the the springtime was a little bit commonly erratic. 
But and this summer is quite good. The Ryan reporters that I know have reported a optimistic opinion on that vintage. I don't know if it's going to be a 2008 or some of the other big guns out there, but it's relatively good news for the champagne for that vintage. So possibly one to look out for in, in the future. Yeah, 96, 02, 2008. Mm. I've heard some mixed reviews about 02. I don't know if you've had much 02 champagne recently, but I've heard that it's fallen back to the wayside behind those other two that I mentioned. Has that think, kind of been in your experience? I, I just think, bought some, so I'm concerned. No, I think I read, I don't know if it is the 02, and I don't want to say it was, but I think I read something like from Genesis Robinson to say there was, because all the time you have to check these vintages, you can't just say that's what it's going to be. They have to sure. be tested, and all of a sudden, what we think is going to be another five years is actually reduced to just one more year before people need to drink it now, and the quality fades away. But I'm not sure about the 2002 myself. I've got 96 in the fridge there from Dom Perignon. I still think that's lasting quite well. But if we, if you look on, say, social media groups or online, there's a lot of people sharing their tasting experiences of wine. So it's always good to look at what they're saying. They, these could be just. They don't have to be wine professionals. They can be champagne-loving people. And they'll open an old bottle, and they say, really good. We know after a period of time we're not going to have a fresh-style wine. We're going to have an altogether different kind of experience from the wine. But people's expectations and desires from an old champagne is very different. We know that a 20-, 30-year champagne is going to lose some of the effervescence in there. I'm going to have a more intensive kind of style wine, a darker color. Brilliant. So I know we've been holding you for almost an hour now here. So I just want to start wrapping up, maybe thinking about what are you looking forward to in 2023? Is there a region? I know you're high on Slovenia. Is there a style? What are you looking for? A couple of things in 2023. I would say it's probably more of the same, really. I hope to go to Slovenia again this year. I'd like to explore more champagne. I'm getting, I want to find a little bit more quality wines within a single vineyard kind of sector. Discover more grower champagnes. I think that is such a deep and intensive, such a varied subject. I'd like to work with more grower champagnes and taste what they're doing, but understand better this smaller terroirs within the region of champagne. That for me would be, if I can target that this year, the kind of what I have in my my diary. Yeah. I want to catch two before we go. Billy had made a note about asking you about sparkling wines in cocktails have you done any experimenting with that yeah my son does a lot of writing on that he does a few there's, it's very trendy it, you know, it's a good subject it's quite in, in, intense it's a lot of people that use sparkling wines in, in in cocktails a touchy subject because not everybody wants to see their wine put in with a cocktail as much as people whiskeys that want the ice put in or the soda but if it's set in bottles, then great. But it's a popular choice. When you look at a menu, wine menu, especially just a trendy bar, they're going to have cocktails and one of them is going to have bubbly, be it a Prosecco or a Champagne. And you go to some of the famous cocktail bars, if you're at the Savoy Hotel, they'll always have Champagne cocktails. So it's very much a tradition in cocktail and certainly in the UK. And I'm opposed to it. Is a mimosa a cocktail? Does that count? Kind of loosely, a kind of yeah, quick five minute job at home. Yes, could be. Yeah. 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 <laughs> thanks a lot, Chris. Appreciate your time today and yeah, obviously extensive knowledge. Where can no, people find Glass of Bubbly? They can find us across social media. So always at Glass of Bubbly. Our name is consistent throughout social media, from TikTok to Facebook. 
And obviously, glassofbubbly.com, we're on there. So always shout out. But if you're involved in bubbly, let us know. If you're tasting fine bubbles, share them with our community. Any questions, we'll always get back and we'll do our best to answer. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining today. And we'll be sure to go and check those out ourselves. Thanks, gents. All right. That was our interview with Christopher Walkie. I hope everybody goes and checks out Glass of Bubbly and learned a little bit about the different styles and regions and expressions that are out there. Yeah, definitely check him out. Glass of Bubbly on social, online, and you can see his categories about the different styles. But until next week, we will be back with another episode and fingers crossed some collection updates for everyone. So have a great week and we'll see you next week. Cheers. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vint platform, find us at www.vint.co. That's www.vint.co. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vint podcast, please email us at support at vint.co. Vint and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circulars amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vint platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications, including this podcast, is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.